Hello and welcome to the Father's House Church. We're so glad that you're here. We pray that you're encouraged by today's message from our associate pastor, Peter Vischer. So we've been in a series on the Gospel of Luke uh, since the beginning of September, and uh, last week, Pastor Greg preached from Luke chapter 7. I am also going to be based in Luke chapter 7 today. Pastor Greg talked about how Jesus touches the places in our lives that are unholy and unclean, uh, and he imparts his holiness, his purity, his power, his purpose into those places. Um, He talked about three keys in order to receive a touch from God, and it was so good. He talked about submissive faith, humble need, and a repentant heart. Now, uh, I celebrated this in the first service as well, but has anybody realized that we have a new website? Has anybody checked out the new website yet? Any hands? No? A few people? You're going on your phone right now to look at the new website. No, you don't have to do that. Um, but you can check out all of our recent messages at tfhchurch.ca. And uh, while you're at it, make sure to browse the new website as well. Okay, so uh, today my message is called The True Message. The True Message. And to begin with a question, I want to ask you, what does a true believer look like? What does a true believer look like? When I was a kid, going to church with my parents, I would always look at the old people in the congregation as the picture of true believers. And so uh, a white-haired man... An old gray suit holding a big Bible, maybe like a stern look on his face. That guy, he's a true believer. Or uh, the elderly woman drenched in perfume, just drenched in perfume. She played the organ in the second service. The whole church smelt like that lady, the whole church. It was the smell of Sunday when she was around. She is a true believer. That's what I thought as a kid. Now, evidently, that picture of true believers is pretty common because you ask almost anyone and they talk about a grandmother who prayed for them, you know, or a great aunt who took them to church. Uh, I introduce myself to my neighbors and they, you know, the question always comes up, what do you do? And I always hesitate a little bit. I'm like, all right, they're going to know that I'm Christian, I'm religious, but I go, I'm a pastor. And every single time, they're like, wow, you are not what we would expect from a pastor. (laughs) And then they go on to reference somebody who's very old or maybe already deceased and whatnot, but an old priest or an old pastor and, and whatnot. But age isn't the only thing when we're identifying true believers because throughout my life, the message I picked up was that Uh, people of faith, people in church, you know, usually boring, usually plain, traditional. Uh, You know, Christians don't get tattoos. They don't dye their hair. They don't get piercings, you know. Um, Some people, when you're identifying true believers, they they look for the cross hanging from the mirror in your vehicle or around your neck. Uh, A whole bunch of people after the service were showing me like tattoos of the fish, you know, the Christian fish symbol. Uh, Some people have those on their car. Anybody have one on your car? Anyone? Yeah, any hands? First service, we had a few hands go up. Um, But let me talk for a moment about the fish symbol, because I think this is actually really amazing. Did you know that the fish symbol, apart from the cross, is the most recognizable symbol of the Christian faith? 
The fish symbol, we're gonna show a graphic to you, there it is. It's based on the Greek acronym for the phrase, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Now in Greek, when you take the first letter of each one of those words, you get the Greek word for fish. Isn't that amazing? That is super cool. And so a fish painted or etched on the outside door of a house would let other Christians know that they would be safe and welcome to come inside during a time of persecution. Another thing uh, somebody mentioned in the first service was if you were unsure, you could literally draw the ark half a fish, and if the other person looked at you and took the stick and drew the other half of the fish, you knew that that person was a safe person. But the ancient catacombs in Rome, they're filled with images of the fish symbol carved there by Christians who were hiding in those tunnels. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so that was a little bit of an aside, but I would ask the question, do symbols define true believers? If a reckless driver with road rage has a fish on his car, does that make him a true believer? Do celebrities... You know, you ever watch like, uh, you know, the rewards and whatnot and a celebrity gets up on stage and the first thing they say, I would just like to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for getting me here today. Um, Some of us say, I know that guy. He's not a true believer. Have you heard his lyrics? Have you seen his acting? He's not a true believer. And then others of us, we might say, who are we to judge that person? Maybe he is a true believer. Maybe she is a true believer. And so, will the real true believers please stand up? We're going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to talk about what identifies true believers. God, we thank you for your church. God, your church is so diverse. It is made up of generations of people. God, it is made up of people, some who are more traditional, others who are more contemporary. God, with different focuses and preferences and passions, your church is beautiful and amazing. And so, God, I pray that today we would just catch a revelation of our need for you, Jesus, and to be based in your kingdom, no matter, God, the way that we feel most comfortable in in church or as a believer, God. Just help us now in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So one of the first characters that we see in the New Testament, we've already talked about him a little bit as we've journeyed through the book of Luke. Uh, His name was John the Baptist. And another cool story. I found out last week, I was talking to my grandpa, my great grandpa was named Jean Baptiste. Isn't that amazing? I was like, you mean like John the Baptist? And my great grandpa's name is John the Baptist. I'm so excited about that. Anyhow, it's awesome. So, uh, but the real John the Baptist, who my great grandfather is named after, he, he had some serious qualifications, okay? He never drank wine or fermented drink. He ate locusts and honey in the desert. Come on, we should all be doing that. He lived in the desert. He had a camel skin suit. I mean, think about the true believers in your life. He had a leather belt. I mean, this is like next level, you know, Christian true believer type stuff. Um, But in all seriousness, all right, He was a true believer. John the Baptist, it was said of him that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That is a great prayer for parents to pray over their little ones growing 
you know? May they be filled with the Spirit of God. John the Baptist was a prophet. He was the forerunner of Jesus, preparing the way for him, calling people to repent, preaching the coming of God's kingdom. Now, again, growing up and looking at a picture of a true believer, a picture of John the Baptist, has anyone else realized that John the Baptist is always portrayed kind of crazy? Like, I mean crazy, like, I mean crazy hair, like twigs in his hair, you know, bugs in his teeth, like, you know, like, John the Baptist is crazy. And we see that a little bit in his life as well, that he was very strong, very specific, very honest about his faith, so much so that it actually eventually got him killed. He called out King Herod on his adultery, and uh, so the king locked him up and eventually had him beheaded. So this guy was zealous. He was crazy. But before he died, many who were inspired by John's radical Christianity, they asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? Are you the coming Son of God? And here is John's response. We find this in Luke chapter 3. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize with water. Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and to untie the straps of his sandals. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into the barn, burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Kind of an intense description. A lot, actually. Um, but from these verses, we again catch a glimpse of John. John was strict. John was severe. John talks about igniting a fire, a tough message, a clean sweep, threshing people's lives, burning up the chaff. And it's what you would expect from a gnarly, bearded, long-haired, bug-eating guy, right? But what I want you to see here is that John is anticipating that Jesus is going to come like him. Jesus is going to look like him. These are the things Jesus is going to do. I want you to know that although very different, John and Jesus... John loved Jesus. His first revelation of Christ as the Messiah shows that he is convinced Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the Son of God. We find that in John chapter 1. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the one that I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am. He existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. John testified, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know that he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus. I testify, he is the chosen one of God. And so we have two very different people but they're in unity together. Have you ever been, uh, I'm sure you have been, have you ever been so excited and full of expectation, but then you realize as things pan out, this is looking differently than I expected. 
That is what is about to happen to John the Baptist. He starts with, I watched the Spirit rest on him. This is God's chosen one. Wow, wow, wow. Jesus is here. He has come. But then as the story goes, John discovers that Jesus isn't everything that he thought he would be. In some ways, he's actually living and demonstrating the gospel very differently than John. Jesus didn't come out swinging. You know, you ever catch those Christians or those evangelists that kind of come out swinging? That's what they do. Jesus wasn't as severe as John was, but he was loving and welcoming even toward people who were considered to be the worst of sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people with leprosy and all that kind of thing. Jesus doesn't, or John, sorry, doesn't drink wine. That's what it said about John. Jesus, his first miracle was what? turning water into wine. That's it. John's disciples are fasting and praying. They're fervent, devoted, strict. Jesus' disciples are walking down the road on the Sabbath day, picking grain out of the field and eating them, which was unlawful to do. In John chapter 3, John's disciples get into a conflict with Jesus' disciples. They're arguing about ceremonial washing and baptism. Can you imagine Jesus' disciples and John's disciples arguing about who's right. That's incredible. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18, this is what happens next. So I want you to hear this text in light of the one that I just read. First text was John going, Jesus is coming. He's God's son. He's anointed by the Spirit. This is what he's going to do. He's going to burn up the chaff. And now, here we are in Luke chapter 7. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples, they found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? the expectations are looking a little bit different. Now see this next part because I think it gives a great answer to their questions. At that very time, Jesus cured people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed, swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, John is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you of all who have ever lived, Jesus says, none is greater than John, and yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That was a lot of reading. But let me sum this up for you. What we see most prominently in this passage is God is validating Jesus' ministry with signs and wonders and miracles. 
God is validating Jesus's ministry. And then in the second half, what you see is Jesus validating John. Jesus is validating John's ministry. Jesus doesn't launch into a debate with John's disciples. How dare you question me? I'm the son of God. Don't ask me questions. Get out of here. But he points to the evidence and he says, look at these lives. Look at these people who have been healed and saved and set free. He doesn't say, well, John's more legalistic. I'm a little bit more seeker sensitive. Uh, You know, I'm an optimist. John's a pessimist. I drink Pepsi. John drinks Coke. (laughs) You know, we're, we're different. He doesn't do that. But he honors John. Jesus doesn't compare. But he implies that John, like everyone listening, needs to be based in the kingdom of God. John needs to be based in a relationship with his heavenly father, no different than any of us, church. He doesn't focus on John's approach to ministry, his clothes, his other externals, whether he lives in a palace. You know, he goes deeper and essentially says, John and I are in the same kingdom. John and I are serving together toward a common goal. Amen. Verse 29 goes on to describe people with believing hearts and those with resistant hearts. And that's really a kind of a core thought in my message today is that God is looking at our hearts. He's not always looking at, you know, our preferences and our traditions and and all the rules and all the things that we think make up. This is what a true believer looks like. God is looking at our hearts. Verse 29, it says, when they heard this, all the people, even the tax collectors, they agreed that God's way was right, for they had been baptized by John already. But the Pharisees and experts in the religious law, they rejected God's plan for them, and they had also refused John's baptism. There's something really interesting here. So I've kind of talked a bit about, you know, John and Jesus are demonstrating and preaching the gospel differently. The people in this text the ring of truth is with John as much as it is with Jesus. You know, there, there were people in the crowd who had heard John's message. They had repented. They had been baptized. Jesus comes along and they're like, this makes sense. Amen. Those same people believed in Jesus. But those who had rejected John are now rejecting Jesus. It didn't matter that they were different. They were preaching to the same goal. And those with hearts to receive and respond to God they responded to John and Jesus the same. Those whose hearts were miserable and resistant, hard hearts, they couldn't receive either message. Jesus addresses the religious bunch with sarcasm, and he kind of paints a little story here. This is what he says in verse 31. What can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them? They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. And so we played the funeral songs and you didn't weep. And then this is how he explains the analogy. John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine. And so you said, he's possessed by a demon. The son of man, that's Jesus, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, oh, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Now, the last line really balances this for us. It says, wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. It's really about 
the results coming out of someone's life. Amen? Pastor Greg, uh, I think it was last year, he had a really great take on this uh, passage of Scripture. He says, We came to you preaching a message of happy, 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 happy message, and there was no dancing. So we came to you with a message of crabby, crabby, and there was no crying. And so maybe happy, happy church, happy, happy Christianity refers to a kind that is a little bit more free or maybe a little bit more contemporary or unrestrained, you know, a kind of gospel that says, God wants me to enjoy my life. He wants to uh, heal me and to take care of me and for me to be comfortable. He wants me to have fun and to smile and to laugh and to live life to the fullest. And a lot of people, they'll say, that's the gospel. God is good to me. Whereas some people understand, I don't know if it's an accurate description, but they understand the gospel is more of that crabby, crabby side. You need to deny yourself, discipline yourself, work as hard as you can to please God, embrace hardship like a good soldier, grit your teeth, bear it with patience, with perseverance. Life is painful. Sometimes we're looking on to eternity because one day we're going to be in heaven with Jesus. Now, I hope you didn't catch any partiality either way, because I believe as a pastor, those both represent the true message. Both are true. John came severe. John came strict. John came saying, repent, repent. God's going to cause a fire. Jesus came with good news, deliverance, Freedom, healing, health. We see true believers in both churches. We see true believers representing both gospels. In churches that are more strict and religious and others that are more free and less traditional, that last verse is so key. Wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Jesus is saying, don't, don't try to box people in with rules. Don't try to box people in with this is what it's supposed to look like. They're not going to look the same. There are genuine, powerful kingdom of God results that are produced in the lives of those who embody the message of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So never mind all the differences, because there's a lot of differences between Christians and pastors and churches today. God is so interested with what's in our hearts. God is so interested with what is in our hearts. And so moving toward a conclusion this morning, I'm going to give you three quick points, uh, and I think this is really going to help you a lot. This is a, a good way to test whether believers are true. The first one has to do with actions, and actions are what we say and do. The second one has to do with motive, which is why we say and do what we say and do. And then the last one is fruit. The Bible talks a lot about fruit, which is who we are during what we say and do. Actions, motive, and fruit help us to get to the heart of the issue. And so let's look at the first one, actions. Church, the reality of God's kingdom is demonstrated through your actions. Jesus posed a great question when he said, what good does it do for you to say that I'm your Lord and master if you don't put it into practice, if you don't practice what I teach you? I would paraphrase that to say, what good is it if you know the right things to say? 
What good is it if you shout amen and if you raise your hands and maybe you have a fridge magnet of a verse on your fridge, you know, but it's not producing life change in your activities. Someone told me many years ago, it's not just about reading the Bible, it's about letting the Bible read you. You start reading the Bible, the Bible starts reading you. You can read words on a page, you can memorize a few of them, but when the Bible starts reading you, you actively respond to that process, and it produces transformation. James chapter 1, it says, don't just listen to God's word, do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and you don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, the perfect law is the law of love. It's the law of Jesus that sets you free. And if you do what it says, and if you don't forget what you heard, God is going to bless you for doing it. You'll be a true believer. Secondly, it's not just about your actions, it's also about your motives, why we say and do what we say and do. It's crazy to think that two people can be doing all the same activities, and one can be right, and one could actually be completely off base. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking, and he says, on judgment day, there's going to be people there that say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles. Jesus will reply and say, I never knew you. Those four words. Three words? (laughs) Four words. I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. I never knew you. Your motives represent your reason for doing things, and if our activities are to impress other people, to appear important, to come across as powerful or super spiritual or religious or anything like that, it's missing it. It's missing it altogether. These guys had an impressive resume, prophecy, casting out oppressive spirits, um, performing miracles. Jesus is saying, we had no relationship, none whatsoever. In God's kingdom, all action flows out of loving relationship with God. And when your heart beats with his heart, all those works, all those activities, all those things, they're, they're not actually about you. They're about giving glory to him, glory to God. They're all for him. Now, if actions and motive are not enough for testing true believers in all these different churches, um, the last one is pretty good. It's fruit. And fruit is who we are during what we say and do. Let's check out Matthew chapter 7. It says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit, and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire, thus by their fruit you will recognize them. I think that the analogy of fruit is brilliant. I just think it's the most awesome analogy. Fruit is something that that grows up in you from seed form. It's something that only God can do. 
And I was thinking about it earlier this week, but you can't make fake fruit. I mean, people make fake fruit. You know, it's, it's made of styrofoam. <laughs> it's made of plastic. They, they paint it bright colors. But let me tell you, if you were to go up to a big bowl of fake fruit and pick up a piece of styrofoam and go, it's not going to taste very good. It's not the real thing. But real fruit, fresh, beautiful, delicious, real fruit. We don't really have that in Alberta, and we pay way too much for it in the grocery store. <laughs> but some of you who have traveled, anybody traveled to like a beautiful tropical place, have you ever picked fruit right off the vine and eaten it? Anybody? I'm going to live vicariously through you right now because I've never done that. But I've heard that that fruit, nothing tastes as good as it. It's like eating candy. It's so delicious. Amen? And it's the same with followers of Jesus. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes out of people's lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I could tell in the first service, a lot of people had memorized that because they started, they started saying it, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so I talked about different kinds of believers today. Some who are more traditional, some who are more modest, some who are more free and contemporary, some like John the Baptist who emphasized the message of repent, 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 turn from your sin. Let me tell you, that's a good message. That's a message that we will never lose in this church. I don't want anybody thinking that this is suddenly going to become a church that only preaches the merry, good, joyful news of the kingdom. We will preach that message, but we will never stop preaching repentance, life change, turn from your sin. But we will also preach God loves you. God is for you. God wants to heal you. He wants to set you free. This is going to be a church where people dye their hair. <laughs> you know, people come and they look different and they dress different. But God is so interested in what's in our hearts. Amen? Amen? And so I encourage you to live a balanced life, to embrace the whole message. I pray that your actions and your motives will be in keeping with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then when people experience you, when they taste your life, it'll be a delicious taste of God's kingdom. Amen? Let me finish with the scripture. This is found in Romans 14. It says, welcome with open arms. I'll invite Nick. Nick is somewhere around here. Nick and the worship team. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way that you do. Don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with, and so treat them gently. Amen. And so I was praying this way earlier, but I, I love the church. I love all the generations of people in the church. I love the various experiences and testimonies that God brings together. I, I relish the differences. I even just think about the mosaic cross and there's mosaic stained windows in many churches and they're different shapes and they're different colors and the light shines on them differently. What a beautiful picture of the church. Amen? True believers representing the true message of the kingdom. Let all of us be 
based in the kingdom, based in a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us. For more of our messages and information on our ministries, you can visit tfhchurch.ca. Have a great week.